0: You know, this is a terrific. Good to see you all here. Uh, can we pray as we get started? Lord, we thank you for making us all and calling us to your purpose. Thank you for calling us into your royal household and giving us good work to do for your name and for your glory. Uh, Lord, we lift up this time. We invite you into this place and ask that you would be foremost in our hearts and minds and spirits. And May we all hear the things that you would have in mind for us. Uh, know your will for our lives. We recognize that this is a fallen place, it's a difficult place, but we thank you that you've given us a way to understand this place and to stay in you as we go through it. And even in that, we ask that you would be in in, um, in this discussion today. Uh, we love you, Lord, and are grateful for you, in Jesus' powerful name, amen. amen. Well, let's see, so y'all are doing some traveling coming up here pretty soon, probably, so we need a traveling joke. Um, what is a buzzard's preferred type of luggage? Carry the carry on, exactly. Very good, well done. All right, no extra charge for that. Um, all right, so my name is Jim. I'm an emergency medicine doc, and I work with an organization called MedSend. Uh, and MedSend works with like 40 different mission sending agencies that work with healthcare missionaries around the world, uh, which, which is great. MedSend exists. To help healthcare missionaries thrive in the field. And so we talk to a lot of folks who are our grant recipients, but also we do studies with healthcare missionaries around the world and we've, uh, we're looking for what sort of things are, are causing healthcare missionaries to struggle, to not do well, or to thrive. How do they thrive in the midst of the struggles? And one of the most important concepts that we've recognized recently is that moral injury is so very common among, among healthcare missionaries and it explains a lot of the struggles. Uh, that we work with, and the people who've learned how to, how, that we've, we've recognized there are some people who've learned how to deal with that, and so we want to be able to share that. It is that that level of importance, and so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to talk with you all about that today. And it turns out that moral injury is actually an ancient concept. It's a new name for an ancient concept. Uh, and it also turns out that we, as believers, have the best map through the minefield of moral injury, if you will. Uh, we have access to power and to practices that our secular counterparts really cannot understand. And so uh, we're going to wind up on that note today as we talk about this. And this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and so let me give you a little bit of backstory. I was in the Navy for 25 years as an ER doc, and that included a couple of wartime deployments to the war in Afghanistan. The second time was um, during the busiest time of the war, during the surge, and it was to the busiest location, Bastion Hospital in the middle of Helmand Province. We took care of lots of people who were burned up, blown up, shot up, men, women, children, Americans, people from the UK, Afghans, allies, and enemy. And clinically, it was a very successful time. If someone arrived to us with a pulse, 98% of the time they, they left with a pulse, which for the, the horrific battlefield injuries we were receiving, that was, that was pretty impressive. And that was gratifying. But emotionally, our team was really getting beat up. Towards the end of it, I really didn't want to take care of another blown-up guy. It was feeling very strange. Uh, and we, most of us went home as different people. And about that time, I heard for the first time this term, moral injury. It actually had been published about the time when we were in the field, this this concept. And it had been used to describe the experience of the soldiers, but I recognized it in us, in the medics. So we started looking into it further and talking about it, uh, about moral injury and combat medicine ethics, and there was a ready audience among the military medical community. We talked about it a lot including ultimately at the Pentagon on a number of occasions at a regular class there. And then I retired in 2013 and became a medical missionary. Yay! And went to Jagoria, Kenya, um, where we found the same thing. Lots of moral injury in ourselves and in other healthcare missionaries. Um, so we started uh, talking about it uh, in, in, the, in that group and doing more, uh, more research into that, looking into it. And as I recognized it, we we, we realized that we could recognize moral injury, but we really didn't know what to do about it. Um, That that was a bit of a struggle, but you you could feel that things were, tension was building. When COVID started to come to uh, around the world, I actually was kind of excited about it. I know how to do mass casualty, you know. So I was saying, here are the things that we need to do. But a lot of the people I was working with didn't want to do any of that. We we sharply disagreed on what was the right thing to do in preparing for COVID patients. We both thought that we were right, and we were diametrically opposed, and it started making me mad. I got angrier and angrier to the point where one day my wife, Martha, said, Honey, you're angry, and you haven't even gone down to the hospital yet. And I realized that something was really wrong. So we left and went to Alongside, which is a wonderful place of uh, uh, counseling for missionaries of all sorts, and especially healthcare missionaries. We spent a month there, and we're, we're, we're wonderfully restored. began to learn about how to take care of moral injury, and since that time, we've been doing some more research specifically on moral injury and healthcare missionaries, and that's what I have to share with you today. There are a number of definitions of moral injury out there. The one I like is. Moral injury happens when someone commits an act, is party to an act, or fails to prevent an act that violates their deeply held moral values. So when someone commits an act, is party to an act, or fails to prevent an act that violates their deeply held moral values. It's closely akin to guilt and shame. There can also be an element of betrayal in there, in which you feel like you've betrayed someone's trust. Or you've trusted someone legitimately, and they've betrayed your trust. And what tends to happen is it kind of shakes your understanding of what is good and right. If you've done something that you know it surprised you, am I the person who I thought I was? Am I moral? Is this person who I trusted? Can I trust anybody else? Is this person moral? Is the world even a moral place? Is God who I thought he was? Moral injury is different from post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is more a matter of the emotion. When someone has experienced a severe life-threatening event, and they've, they've had a lot of emotion that goes on with that. Fear is the word with that one so this is more nightmares flashbacks that sort of thing that's ptsd moral injury is less emotion and more spiritual it's guilt and shame and there tends to be a distance between us and other people a couple of examples um and I'm going to tell a number of stories with this, and these are either my stories or from people that I've talked to directly. There are a couple of them in here where I've combined some very similar stories, so there may be some details that I've, I've put together. Uh, there was an obstetrician who, when she was a resident, campaigned against abortions, felt strongly about that. But the place where she went to serve um, was a place where if a young woman was found to be pregnant and she was not married, then she would be killed by her family for the honor of the family. And she was working in a clinic um, one day, and a young lady came in, and she was pregnant, um, and she was unmarried. Uh, And so the obstetrician realized that if she didn't do what this young lady was asking her to do, then she would be dead in short order, sitting across the desk from her. How do you even refer in that sort of an environment? You can't do it. There was no way to spirit her out of the country. And then she realized that if she did do what this young lady was asking her, she was going to be guilty of this or guilty of that. And she experienced moral injury from the outcome of that. Another missionary was driving with his family in their car, and um, their mission agency had told them, if you are driving and you ever hit someone in the car, Leave. Do not stay because there's, there's mob violence and they will attack you and they will kill you if they can. And here he was driving in his vehicle and they were thinking, okay, that's terrible, but you know, certainly that will never happen. Uh, and he was driving in the car with his family and he hit a lady. She stepped out right in front of him um, and uh, he ran over, hit her hard. Didn't, probably had killed her, didn't know. And he tre- reflexively stopped to render aid. But then he saw the faces of the people surrounding the car, and he realized, oh no, I can't stay. So he left, tried to find the police station, couldn't find it. While his children were saying, shouldn't we stop and take care of the lady? So not only was there the guilt associated, there was the shame even in front of his own children. Moral injury is not just an academic exercise. It's strongly associated with these sorts of things, depression, anxiety. Interestingly, with the, I think it's probably from the guilt that goes along with moral injury. There tends to be a separation between us and God. And maybe some of it is just a wondering of, is God who I thought he was? But that idea of being distanced from God is really common um, with those of us involved with moral injury. And very sadly, suicidality. Is significantly increased in people who have uh, severe moral injury. PTSD can be fairly readily treated with standard psychiatric stuff, medications, and secular psychotherapy. Moral injury, not so much. Meds don't work. It's not an emotional thing, it's a spiritual thing. Secular psychotherapy doesn't work. There are some Christian aspects to psychotherapy that can be helpful, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, but it, it is a, it is significantly a different entity. Right? And here's a really important point for those of us who are going to be practicing in, in other cultures. <clears throat> cross-cultural medicine is a moral injury factory. Moral injury will occur if you're practicing in cross-cultural medicine. And just Think about it. If a culture can be defined by core beliefs, deeply held values, and you're talking about different cultures, then those are different, deeply held values about the value of human life. What does birth mean? What does death mean? How is money spent? Who makes important decisions? Those are core values that a society will have. And if they're different, and medicine sits right on top of all of those, Then in your practice, if it's not violating my 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 values, it's violating theirs. Okay, so moral injury simply will occur. Some examples: um, A family practice uh, doc had helped a lady deliver twins. The twins were unexpected, um, and when he went to um, congratulate the mom, she was not all that pleased. And so he thought, well, you know, it's an unexpected mouth to feed. But everyone was doing well, and so he tucked him in and he went home. And when he came back the next day, uh, there was only one twin. When he went to ask the nurses, they seemed to be unwilling to acknowledge that there had been a second twin. And when he looked into it further, he found out that in their culture, when someone had twins, the first twin was considered to be normal, natural, and the second one was considered to be a demon that was trying to sneak its way into the world by looking like the first one. And so they routinely did away with the second baby. And so he realized that at his mission hospital, his nurses had done away with that baby in the middle of the night. Okay? So his responsibility, his sense of betrayal, he was morally injured. Right? But he also recognized that if he had compelled that woman to go home with the second baby, she would have thought she was taking a demon home. And so would her family have thought that and her village have thought that. In some places around the world, um, including the place where we went to work, there's this practice of discharge in, in which um, if you've treated the patient in the hospital, they've gotten better, they're ready for discharge, but they haven't paid their bill, they can't leave, and they're kept in the hospital. So we would have them, and there would be in the back of the of the ward, would be the discharge in patients. They're well, they could go, but they are being held against their will until, until they pay the bill or the family does that. Okay, And that really... Chaps us, doesn't it? Aren't we there to take care of the poor? You know, why are we doing this? This seems it seems so wrong. If you do that here in the United States, you're going to go to jail yourself. That's wrongful imprisonment, right? Uh, not, not allowing someone to leave when they want to go. Um, but over there, it's a really common practice that violates our deeply held moral values. So um, let's take a, let's take a three or four minutes and. See if this rings a bell with anyone. If you gather together in groups of two to five and say, "You know, the question is, have you ever experienced moral injury or have you seen it in someone else? I'll just leave it at that. Let's talk with each other for a few minutes. All right, let's finish up and come back in. Okay. So, in dealing with moral injury, as we've said, cross-cultural medicine is a moral injury factory. Moral injury simply will happen. It is inevitable. Okay. Also, moral injury tends to be cumulative. It's sort of like a toxin. The more you ingest it, the more it builds up in your system. If you, if you don't learn how to detoxify, how to meto- met metabolize, it will build up until it causes one of those problems that we described earlier on, okay? like, it ha- like happened with me. But happily, there are ways to prevent some moral injury, not all of it. There are ways to prevent some of it and to metabolize the toxin in, in some other ways. And so we'll talk about both of those. So let's start uh, initially with talking about preventing unnecessary moral injury. And some of that has to do with identifying mistaken, deeply held values. Just because it's a deeply held value doesn't mean that it's actually valid. And there are some values that we hold especially that have been put into us in American medicine that, um, that can wind up being inaccurate, deeply held moral values. And when we uh, conflict with those, it may produce unnecessary moral injury. So let's talk about three American medical worldviews that can lead to unnecessary moral injury. The first one is the American medical work ethic. Okay, We are just indoctrinated with the idea that you work until the work is done, and we see we work until all the patients are dealt with. An 80-hour work week is a a, a reasonable limitation in uh, in training, and uh, that's pushed, of course. And then after you finish, there is no such limitation. Uh, We're just pushed to work and work and work. Uh, the idea is the more you work, the more you sacrifice for the sake of your patients. the more honorable you are, right? can everybody identify with that? But, you know, the rest of the world, most of the rest of the medical world doesn't work like that. Most medics, including good Christian people around the world, work a reasonable work week, and then it's time to go home, and everybody understands, yeah, we can't ask people to work like that. That's kind of crazy. And then we have this very interesting phenomenon. In 2018, the American Psychiatric Association did a study looking at vocations and suicidality. You know what the vocation is that has the highest suicide rate? Actually, it's not dentists anymore. It used to be, but now it's uh, it's medics in general, doctors in particular. Highest rate, twice that of the general public. Shouldn't we kind of take notice of that and do something about it? And surely the, work, you know, the workload is not everything in that, but certainly it has to be an ingredient to a, a, a double suicide rate among medical professionals. So the American medical work ethic is at that level. It's, it, it's, it's just pretty outrageous. And, but we might think, well, you know, aren't we Christians? And shouldn't we work as unto Christ, meaning giving ourselves to everything? Wouldn't it be unchristian to turn away from someone if they're seeking care, if they're seeking help? But perhaps for this example, we should turn to Christ and what he did. Now, Jesus worked hard. There are times when he healed entire villages, absolutely. But that was not his only priority. And when it was time to move on to something else, he left that work, sent the crowds away, and moved on to whatever was the other priority. Okay. Some of these people, Scripture tells us, came from places that would have required a three-day walk to reach where he was preaching. And when it came time to go, he sent them away. And when they wouldn't leave, he got in a boat and went to the other side of the lake. And when they followed him, he got back in the boat and went to the other side of the lake. And a lot of good ministry happened in that boat and on the other side of the lake. Right? So we can't very well say it is unchristian to send away people who are looking for our help you know, certainly we are, are to work un, um, as unto the Lord and take care of our brother, but there are times when it is absolutely appropriate to recognize our own limitations. Jesus at that point was not omnipresent, and so he had to take account of that. We also need to recognize that we are not omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and acknowledge our own limitations. The Bible does say, Love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible does not say, Love your patients more than your family. So if we consider that premise, the more we work for our patients, the more honorable we are, let's ask these questions. Is that based on a biblical value? I would say at its core, yeah. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Work as unto the Lord. Um, You are your brother's keeper. Sure, that's a biblical value. Have we taken it beyond that biblical value, though, to a place where it really doesn't belong? And I think, you know, hopefully we've made the case that that we have taken it beyond that. If Jesus could, you know, stop that work and move on to other things when the crowds desperately wanted him, then it is reasonable for us to do that. We need to uh, recognize our limitations, sort of like Jethro taught Moses in the wilderness, right? Taught him how to delegate. You're going to wear yourself and the people out working like that. You need to learn how to to delegate and move on. And so can that mutation lead to unnecessary moral injury? It absolutely can. If we think we are to work until we see every patient, when we go to the mission field and the demand is enormous and the supply of that medicine is just us, and that mutated value can really lead to a lot of injury and overwork and burnout, or you know, the, the, or the injury from not doing that. Okay, does that make sense? Another American medical worldview is the idea that we are responsible for our patients' outcomes. You might think, well, of course we are, and isn't that good? I mean, well, yeah. Again, you know, where we are to be our brother's keeper, and and the American medical system of Ensuring that we are responsible for taking care of our patients is a good thing. If you've ever worked in a system where that is not present, where people are, don't really feel any sense of responsibility, the level of care is very different. They say, "Well, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You know, it's time for me to go home." Then th- that's a very different medical system. So there, there's a lot of good that can come from that. But the question really is, are we ultimately responsible for our patients' outcomes? Of course, in the American medical system, if you go to morbidity and mortality rounds and you say, you know what, I really feel that this was the person's time and this was what the Lord had in mind, it's probably not going to go well, right? You know, It might be a, um, your vocation might change. But if we look at this from a believer's point of view, it's important to see that God claims sovereignty in the life and death of the people whom he has made. Deuteronomy 32.39 is a great verse for this, and I commend it for your memorization. I've used it so many times, both with myself, my colleagues, and my patients who need to hear about God's sovereignty. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. And that is as crystal clear a statement of absolute sovereignty as I can imagine in the life and death of people. We also love Psalm 139, right? In your book, we're all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there were not one of them. God claims sovereignty in the life and death of his people. So what does that mean? Does that mean we don't have free will? Does that mean we there are no consequences for our actions? Does that mean that medicine then is superfluous because God's going to do what God's going to do? I don't believe that at all. And one of the best examples of that, I think, is the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, right? So the Good Samaritan was a paramedic. You notice that? I'm an ER guy, so I love that. So the, the, the Good Samaritan found the man down. He applied standard of care first century medicine, right? Oil and wine and bandaging. He put him on his transport vehicle and took him to the location of ongoing care. Right? He's a paramedic. It's great. And Jesus held that up as the pinnacle of a good neighbor. All right? Jesus loved that. What Jesus did not say is the Samaritan stopped and prayed and the man was healed. Didn't say that. Instead, it was an act of free will. Because some people chose not to do that. The Samaritan did choose to do that. And Jesus praised that choice and the outcome of that choice. All right? So that's a free will decision with consequences uh, that, that was, was important. So, what I am saying, though, is that the responsibility for outcomes is not ultimately ours. Somehow, there is free will. And somehow, there is God's sovereignty. And somehow, they both are in action in in the world. How does that happen? I don't know. I'm a time-bound being. I can't figure that out. But the Bible says it's true. And so sharing some of that responsibility with the Lord God of heaven and earth is a pretty reasonable thing. So if we think about this idea of uh, the premise of we are ultimately responsible for our patients' outcomes, is that based on a biblical value? Sure. Take care of your brother. Love your neighbor as yourself. You bet. Is it carried further in American medicine? I would say it's actually carried to the point of a delusion of grandeur that we are ultimately responsible, and we are not. God is ultimately responsible, and so could that mutation lead to an unnecessary moral injury if you have a lot of patients who are dying on your service? You know, young children. All, right. All our days are ordained since before the beginning of the beginning of the earth. So, um, if we don't believe that, then we can um, if. When people believe that our free will is the, the only ingredient in this, then burnout and moral injury is, is can be devastating. I'll just put it that way. Another American medical worldview is the idea that the poor should receive free medical care. Okay, so we talked about the discharge in situation, you know, at the hospital where if people have um, if people have been unable to pay, they're kept in the hospital until they do pay. Well, when we talked with the hospital about that, well, first of all, in, in American medicine, of course, uh, we say that the, the poor should receive free medical care. There's a system built for that, and actually it's a federal law. If you violate that law, if someone comes to hospital very sick and you don't take care of them, you send them away, then you violated the Antala laws and you can be fined and the hospital can lose their Medicare license. Uh, but we, that's a very different system from a mission hospital that is dependent upon um, patient income, and if, you, if it's only in a place where there are only poor people, then if, if you start to say, okay, everybody gets free medical care, that hospital will be bankrupt in a week. They can't do that. So at our hospital, what they had decided to do wisely was that, you know, for hospitalization, people needed to pay for that, but they subsidized outpatient care uh, for people who, who had trouble paying, so in the outpatient clinic, the charge for that was a dollar for someone to be seen. Heavily subsidized. Took care of so many more patients than the inpatients. And that was a very good system of taking care of the poor without bankrupting the hospital. Okay? So the idea that the poor should receive free medical care, is, is it really based on a biblical value? We are to take care of the poor absolutely taking care of the widows and the orphans and so forth I mean there are are plenty of instances in the Bible where when God looks at the nation of Israel and says you're not taking care of the poor God is angry with them and brings consequences we are to take care of the poor but has that been carried further than the biblical value that they require free hospitalization you know hospitals didn't exist when the Bible was written so it's not there Uh, Bibles were invented by Christians in the 300's actually uh, but the idea that free hospitalization is required is not a biblical value. It's been carried further. <clears throat> and that mutation can lead to unnecessary moral injury, as happened with us and the discharge ends. The heads I'm feeling morally injured right now. Oh. <laughs> so I think you are showing
1: your bias as an ER doctor, because EMTALLA laws do exist, and ERs can't turn away poor
0: people. But that happened because ERs were dumping poor patients in other hospitals.
1: Generally in the healthcare system in the U.S., I don't think there's the assumption that people get
0: free care, that almost everywhere except the ER you're expected to have cash. Yeah. And I think that actually the system is not biased in the way that you're suggesting towards a foreigner country except for the emergency department. Okay. And, I, yeah, that, that, I, I accept that uh, statement of bias that as an ER doc, there's that thing of, of uh, free care and that in the rest of the country and the rest of the systems. I also General, the whole American that we should give free care the Okay. All right. Thank you for that. I, I accept your editorial comments. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, but the idea is that free hospitalization is not necessarily a biblical mandate. And so if we think that it is biblical, then we may be morally injured if that doesn't occur. Uh, so in, instead we can move on from that. So again, recapping. Um, moral injury is inevitable. It is cumulative, and we've talked about preventing. Now let's talk about metabolizing moral injury. How can we deal with that? I believe that metabolizing moral injury is an absolutely essential spiritual discipline in cross-cultural missions. As we've talked with people who are successful in missions, they all do some of these practices. Some of them, uh, we hear about all of them. Uh, If if they're not involved with this, there, there tends to be accumulated moral injury, and people tend not to do well. So let's talk about some of these strategies. I'm going to talk about five practices and two mindsets that um, help in dealing with with moral injury. And so I'm just going to list the first five and we'll talk about each of them individually. The practice of lament, sharing the burden with grace-filled, like-minded believers, confessing and receiving forgiveness, taking time away, and working to redeem the situation. These work, and you will notice that they are not medications and secular psychotherapy. They are spiritual answers to a spiritual problem. So let's talk about the first one, the practice of lament. In my faith tradition, we really didn't talk a whole lot about this. Actually, I think lament would have been thought to be um, uh, complaining to the Lord, which would be an evidence of not having faith and trust in what he was doing. That would be kind of the way we felt but in truth, lament is a marvelously biblical practice. There's the book of lamentations. There a third of the Psalms or more are lamentations, or can contain laments. Isaiah lamented, Jeremiah lamented, Moses lamented, David lamented, Jesus lamented. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The 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 martyrs under the altar in heaven in Revelation lament. How long, O oh Lord, will you take before you do something you know, before you do something about our blood? It's a griping, a complaining to the Lord about the rottenness of the situation we find ourselves in. You might say that it's an agreement with God about the fallenness of the situation. But really, how long, O oh Lord, will it take before you're engaged in this? Why do the wicked prosper? All of these are laments, intensely biblical and instead of saying that they're not faithful they actually are intensely faithful if someone has no faith they're not talking to God about this at all instead this is a very honest sharing with God about our own feelings which he knows anyway and and complaining of, of, about the fallenness so that we can you know, hopefully we will be able to do something about this uh, k martin says that uh, this is one of the most theologically informed practices we can we can do uh, this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, written by Mark Vrogop, is, is wonderful. I really appreciate it. Very, um, and It helped me understand um, understand this better. And he describes lament as being the road between the ditches of denial and despair. That if bad things are happening, you can deny them, which is off the road, and you can despair because there's no answer to them, and that's off the road too. But, But... Lament is more more in the in the uh, in the middle of the road, and if you think about that idea of moral injury being you know disturbing your sense of is the world uh, a moral place or is God moral at all, it's important to remember that in lament it's not just griping. There are other parts to it. The next part of it is saying, but I know that you God are good, and then returning to praise at the end of it. Okay, so this is a recentering. Uh, if we think everything is wrong, we can say, no, nope, this, this world is a fallen place, but I am recentering. I do know that, God, you are good, and I will praise you in the midst of this. And that really helps deal with that disorienting part of moral injury. Another part is sharing the burden with grace-filled, like-minded believers, people who know that they are sinners and that we are all saved by grace through faith. Moral injury has to do with shame. Shame wants to keep to itself. Brene Brown says that with with shame, there's a tendency to want to keep it in the dark. But when you put um, shame in the dark, it proliferates like mold. But it's a relational thing. If you then are able to share with someone else this thing that is burdensome to you and they don't judge you for that, shame vanishes. When you bring shame out into the light, into the sunlight, it, it dissipates. So sharing with someone who can get it, uh, that, that really matters. So uh, Amy Anderson says that uh, shame can't be dealt with you know, by ourselves. We have to be able to bring that to other people. But I think it's also um, a, a big deal that we not just gripe with each other, that we can share the victories with each other too, you know, about what is it that the Lord has done, what, what, what great things have happened this week, just to help us have praise in the midst of this situation. A third important practice is confessing and receiving forgiveness. Moral injury is about guilt, right? And even the secular psychiatrists recognize that forgiveness is the answer to guilt. We need to confess and repent and seek forgiveness for what has happened because we do sin, we do fail, we do things that cause injury to other people. And it's important to be able to do that. Some of the soldiers have said things that, are, that uh, um, really clarify this. Uh, one of them has said, you know, I would like to have forgiveness, but the person who can forgive me is dead. So what do you do? And it turns out that we can confess to the one who made that person, who judged that person and will judge us, and who has promised, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, nine. It is a promise. We get to confess to that one. Beyond the Supreme Court. The one who can ultimately declare everyone you know, innocent and free. Which is a beautiful thing. The fourth element is time away. If moral injury is like a toxin that you ingest, it's important to get away from that toxin from time to time. Stop ingesting it and, and start metabolizing it. Uh, and the Lord has provided for that in Sabbath and in the feasts and in, in ways like that, time for us to get away. It's a gift. It's a prescribed gift. But it is a gift and a commandment. And one of the most striking examples of, of a successful use of time away comes from Mother Teresa. Now, I'm not endorsing everything about Mother Teresa, but it is noteworthy that she and the Sisters of Charity we're working among the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. And you know that working with poverty is not just not having money. There's you know, the malnutrition and the illness and the prostitution and the drug use and all that stuff that goes on there. It's really hard work. But it's notable that the, the attrition rate among those sisters was very low. Here's their time away practice, according to her book. The sisters will spend a day a week, a week a month, a month, a year, and a year in six away from the work. Basically metabolizing their moral injury away in the mother house in contemplation and penance with solitude, gather the spiritual strength which you might have used up in the service of the poor. If you do the math, they spent more time, more days away from the work than they spent in the work. But isn't their work lauded around the world as being a great work that they sustainably maintained by appreciating the time away um, to metabolize their very difficult situation. The fifth means is to work to redeem the situation. All right? We love to redeem a situation, to right the wrong, heal the injured, and prevent future moral injury. For instance... Um, In the situation of the twins that I mentioned before, um, uh, where the second one was considered to be a demon. In In that group, there were some believers in there. There was a lot of syncretistic belief that they might be Christians, but also have some spiritist beliefs. And they realized that they could teach these people that, you know, in the Bible there was Jacob and Esau. And Esau was the firstborn. And Jacob was the secondborn. And it was through Jacob that Christ came. And so we don't want to kill the second twin. It's important that maybe through whom the blessing comes and to help educate them. Not all of the patients were ready to receive that kind of thing. So they had another system set up so that the believing nurses would take the baby and then take them to an orphanage, arrange for that sort of a thing. So that was a redeeming of the situation, working to prevent future moral injury. It's good for our souls to do that, isn't it? Okay. Now here's a a key factor. We can be the best at metabolizing moral injury. We have the means. We have the tools. We have the map through the minefield that our secular colleagues don't have. We get to lament to one who understands. We're not lamenting to the ether. We're talking to the one who can understand and actually do something about it. We get to share with grace-filled experts in grace, believers who know that we're all sinners. We get to confess with the one who ultimately forgives, and our shepherd kindly prescribes time away for us, time away from this sort of effort. So, special power for a spiritual injury. We'll just go through and talk about a testimonial here. I have a friend who's a nurse practitioner. Um, She spent 40 years on the mission field, taking care of kids, and in the last several years, taking care of abused and abandoned children. Every one of those kids has a horrible story. Every single one, and they're like on a conveyor belt. They keep coming, more and more you know, of these kids. So she can't just accumulate them and you know and build up these things. She has to do what she can to take care of the kids and then pass them on, maybe back to a very difficult situation. And you know what she does? She laments before the Lord as, you know, look at this situation, Lord, how can this possibly be? But I trust you and you are good. When she does things mistakenly, thinking that she's doing the right thing, but something that causes injury, she confesses and repents and, seeks and receives forgiveness. She has a, um, a group of people who she talks to every week. She calls um, friends and supporters and um, talks with them about the situation where um, you know, she, she shares with them and they can help bear her up. And she takes a month off a year, clockwork. She says, I have to leave for, for a time every year. I can't let it build up beyond that. Okay. And she says, I have joy in my job every day. Can you imagine <laughs> working with kids like that and say, I have joy in my job? She's one of my heroes. I uh, just really appreciate that. We'll move on for, for the sake of time. So we've talked about those five practices. A couple of other mindsets that are useful to keep in mind. One of them is to keep the main thing the main thing. All right. It's easy to get distracted by moral injury and other factors while we're trying to serve. But keeping the main thing in mind uh, is is really critical so that we're not derailed by this. And I love this uh, engraving by Albrecht Dürer. It's called Night, Death, and Devil And uh it was an illustration for a book that Erasmus wrote about the good Christian knight. And you can see the knight is in his armor. He's fully armored up and he's proceeding to the city on the, on the top of the hill back there. And he is facing forward, moving on, despite the fact that there is death and the devil next to him trying to distract him from his journey. And he is accompanied by the dog of faith and the lizard of zeal in this very Renaissance uh, symbolic drawing or engraving. I just really appreciate that. He's got the main thing in mind and is not going to be distracted by this nonsense. All right. Um, one of um, one of my friends, um, Eli Horn, is really good at this. Eli is a residency director at a place where the academic institution is really a problem. They keep throwing obstacles in their way. Oh, here's another flaming hoop you have to jump through in order to have us take care of your residents. all this sort of thing. Oh, what a pain. I don't know how he does it. But when I ask him, how do you do it? He said, you know, um, those things are bothersome. But I look around and I see, here's they're they're training East African doctors how to be medical missionaries themselves. And he's saying, okay, here's this graduate and he's practicing at Moa Medical Center, uh, uh, Mission Hospital. Here's this one who's practicing at Latane Mission Hospital. Here's this one who's uh, working with people with amputation. Here are our graduates doing the work and leading people to the Lord in a powerful way. And if I keep that in mind, all this other stuff, I I can deal with. It keeps the main thing in view. That's an important mindset for success in the midst of moral injury. And another one is simple toughness. In a lot of the studies that look at success in in missionaries in general, you just got to be tough. Snowflakes who melt with the first heat tend not to do well because it is a minefield, and as much as we try to avoid it, we're going to step on some of those mines, and it hurts. It is not fun. It is not good. It, you know, it, it really hurts, and there are times when you've been hobbled by one of those things, and it's time to just gather up with someone else who's been hobbled and limp your way through the minefield anyway. you got to be tough. Um, so there, there's no way of avoiding all of it. But it's important to keep that in mind because medical missions is a phenomenal kingdom opportunity. It really is. If you think about it, when people come to the hospital, they are spiritually sensitive. They're confronted with their own vulnerability, their own mortality, or that of their family members. They're asking the God questions. In your church, when they say, okay, let's have prayer requests, what are they all about? Medicine—they're about illness and healing and surgery and ICU and COVID—and we are pushed to prayer by medical issues. So people are spiritually sensitive when they come in, and we have access to people in enormous numbers. At our little place, there were four thousand people through the gate every week, right? So we have these sensitive people who are coming in. Many of those are people who would never darken the door of a church. But they're coming to the hospital because they have that sort of a need. And we also are able to engage in whole person ministry, not just body but spirit. We can have the chaplains that engage with us and with them and you know, we, we can do that too. So it's a wonderful kingdom opportunity. It's important to keep that main thing in view as we deal with the moral injury. And I mentioned before that moral injury is a new term for an old concept. And the old concept is living in a world of sin living in a fallen world. We have within us deeply held moral values that are valid. If you look at the, the accounts of the new heaven and the new earth, children will not die when they are young. People will live out their lives and there will not be pain and misery and suffering. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's within us. And we look forward to that. But it is not here. And that violates us. But the way through that minefield is fundamentally biblical. And if you think about it, This really is our story. This is the lived gospel. Not just the saving gospel, but the lived gospel, the day-to-day gospel. That the world is sinful, and we are sinful within it. But there is a way forward, and that way forward is with the Lord who made us, tightly with Him and with the people whom He has made for us to be in fellowship with. This is our story. And if you also think about it our secular colleagues are in the same minefield and they don't have this story they don't have this this power they don't have the means to deal with that and that should move us and i would invite you to consider if this is an opportunity for evangelism this moral injury and what we have access what we have access to that they don't feel they have access to remember you know that that lament of the the, the secular psychiatrist. Yeah, we're not really sure what to do. We know what to do. And we know how to deal with this. So we can use that with our colleagues, with our patients, and helping them work their way through the minefield and praise God in the midst of it. So moral injury. You will encounter it. And interestingly, when we we stop to say, hey, does anybody anybody have any stories of moral injury? You know what? With medical groups, I've never had any hesitation. With groups, the noise level in here rose almost immediately. It's always that way. We understand this. You will encounter moral injury, but the Lord has provided the way through it. And if we can embrace that, uh, then we can go forward with victory. Um, The the QR code here is a link to um, a uh, boundaries article on boundaries. When we were talking about the American medical worldview of work ethic and responsibility for patients' outcomes. This, uh, this boundary article, Boundaries article talks about that, so you're welcome for that. It, it's free. They'll ask for your email, but they won't do anything else with it after after you've downloaded it. So that's available if you're interested. And so we have a few minutes left for questions. Um, any questions or comments? Yes, ma'am.
1: To me, there's a big difference between other staff people killing a child and you as an OBGYN performing the abortion I can see that as moral injury, and the other one is a horrible situation. But I don't see that moral injury there because you didn't actively participate in that. Do you find that there's a difference as well as how people navigate it? I think it would be a very different experience.
0: I, th- I think that that's a great observation, and uh, the observation was that there's a difference between actually committing an act like the abortion or. You know, someone else committing the act that you're you're, not, you're you're not party to. So yes, there is a spectrum and in moral injury. You know, we're talking about, but there, there's there's also moral distress, which is part of that spectrum that may or may not lead to injury. So we, there have been situations where we've been irritated, by that's not right. But we didn't it didn't like you know make make us question the fabric of reality. You know, that sort of thing. So yeah, there, there is a, there are differences between the two, and it also matters. Different things would affect different people uh, differently, like. I'll just tell you, some of the folks that I was in the war with, it seemed like everything just kind of bounced off of them. They just, you know, really didn't care. Well, they were going to do what they could, and the morality of the situation was, you know, something they were just willing to compromise with or whatever. And with some of us, it really mattered a lot. So, yeah, it's, it's an individual issue, an, I- an issue of degree, and also an, an issue of, of, of being cumulative. I mean, you know, perhaps you've had one of those days where you feel like, you know, I. You know, it does, it's not going to take something big to really disturb me. Something little could disturb me. You know, the the, the straw that broke the camel's back sort of situation, because everything else that, because of everything else that's built up. So yeah, there there are a lot of variables to it. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you.
1: Did you put that summary slide up had That had the um, you know, when you were first introducing the five uh, tools that you had that one? Yes.
0: Thank you. You're
1: welcome. <coughs> Lauren. Um, I would encourage people to also, if you're, if you're going to serve cross-culturally, and if you expect to have any kind of longevity on the field, I'm speaking from almost a decade of, of experience... Um, to broaden your idea, to, to broaden your um, your purpose and your your idea for ministry, um, your goal for ministry. Many in healthcare professions were going over um, with with compassionate hearts, very driven, very equipped, very skilled. Um, what you have to realize also is number one, um, especially if you're going into non-Western contexts. Um, you're going to be put on a pedestal. You're going to automatically be put in leadership positions, uh, whether you're put for that or not. People are going to be looking to you and looking to how you um, how you handle these uh, moral injury situations. Um, other, More than likely, the culture that you're going to actually m- manages moral injury a lot better than I will say that yes, we have, um, I work at the hospital where Jim was, and, um, an example that I have is that we, we do life, we do life together with our, um, with our national brothers and sisters. When I say team, I'm talking about them. They are part of my team. And we, um, had a situation where one of our dear sisters, one of our dear sisters, who was a part of our Bible study, um, uh, fell ill, um, immediately after she found out she was pregnant, and she immediately went into um, a flare-up of ulcerative colitis. Every single one of us on on the team, I can't say me because I'm actually at home with my kids, but every single one um, on our team was at the hospital trying to save her life for days and days and days on end. Um, And it it led to her demise. It was tragic. It was their first child. The child died, she died. It was tragic. But what did our community do? We lamented. I'm talking days, days. We had um, worship, prayer, lament together. We ex- all these things that he he listed. We lamented. We shared the burden. We confessed uh, where we uh, where our limitations were. Um, we took time away. All of these things. So what I, what I say is that a lot of times the culture that you're going to knows how to do this a lot better. But because you're going to be up here, um, automatically put in a position of leadership, people are going to be watching how you handle moral injury. And if you're not doing these things, then guess what? You are going to cause the people who are following you, To also go in that direction. You will cause moral injury to those whom you are leading. So you have to broaden your perspective from just this situation, the person in front of me, to realize that there are so many eyes around you, and you are leading people in how to do this. So you have to put yourself in a posture of a learner. How does the culture where I'm going, how do they do these things? How can I engage with Learn from them and um, demonstrate exactly as Jim is saying, demonstrate, um, use my leadership position to demonstrate a, a Christ centered model
0: for parents. I think, that's, I think those are really good comments. Thank you, Lauren. That's a, that's a really good point. That was, a, that was a tragic situation that we had, and <clears throat> the, the community did all those things. It was amazing how that turned out. I think we have time for one more question or comment. for us as we leave lord god we are grateful to you thank you for your many many loving kindnesses lord this world is a mess and no one knows that better than you Um, please help us as we work our way through it and help us as we encounter these messes to run to you and to share with each other because we know that it's all about relationship it's all about our relationship with you and with each other we're grateful to you, Lord, that you make yourself available to us and you give us these tools. Uh, let us seek those and take delight in your service. Lord, when things are hard, um, <laughs> they're hard, but uh, knowing that we can be with you and that you've sent us into these things can keep help us keep the main thing in mind and to have joy in this journey, looking forward to The next situation, uh, this eternity that you've put in our heart, and we can rejoice in that. It's in the most powerful name in the universe, that of Jesus Christ, the righteous, that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please uh, help us with the
1: evaluations. Thank you.